0: Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Ashley Paul, a songwriter, saxophonist, multi-instrumentalist, whose new album Ray just recently came out on Slip. Ray is a collaboration with... Yoni Silver and Otto Wilberg recorded remotely. And Ashley's music has always had this closeness to it. She talks about really enjoying music over headphones. This feels like music that plays into that love. It's a kind of music that really magnifies small details and imperfections, tiny charms. And It's a record that also pulls on the experience of lockdown, obviously a time where everyone's worlds shrunk considerably. And so that sense of closeness and bringing in the shrinking of space and everything becoming closer feels particularly poignant. What I loved about this conversation is that Ashley chose three important albums that provide either an uplift in mood or space to breathe during this time. Music is, I guess, uniquely positioned in being able to curate the atmosphere of space, particularly at a time where we've kind of lost the ability to control that to a large extent. So it was really interesting to think about the important album's remit through that understanding. Uh, We talk about so much in this conversation, Ashley's up-and-down history with the saxophone, dance parties in a front room, encounters with butterflies, walking with headphones. This was a really lovely conversation. I had such a great time with Ashley and the new record, Ray, is fantastic as well. Head over to ashleypaul.bandcamp.com to check that out. And I'll include more links in the show notes as well and over at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. Hope you enjoy this one. I certainly did, this is Ashley Paul on Crucial Listening. Hello, Ashley. Welcome to Crucial Listening. You have brought three important records for us to talk about. Before we get stuck into those, I wanted to ask about your new album Ray, which came out on Slip. So it sounds like, from what I've read, that you felt quite buoyed by the experience of recording Window Flower with your daughter and partner prior to that point, and that Ray started to come together pretty soon after. So, to begin with, could you tell me about that transition from like out of Window Flower and into? starting to put together Ray.
1: Yeah, well, it, it was a really quick transition. I think I basically finished Window Flower and I was like, right, I'm not actually ready to stop making music right now. <laughs> um, and I had had this idea of the trio for a long time, probably six months before the beginning of this year. So it, at that point, it had been close to a year. Mm. And I had been playing with Yoni and otto separately do like they would come around to my house when we were doing duos and we were talking about the album and the trio and we were kind of making plans to start it in the new year and then everything sort of i mean we got ill like in february and march probably with the virus Uh, you know we had a lot of symptoms that weren't you know right yes so we didn't know that we had it and then now looking back we think we probably did but anyway um so then the lockdown started and at that point I was like, Oh, I'm not going to be able to do it. But then once window flower happened, I was like, right. Ben, cause my hu- my husband was home from work <laughs> and I had extra hands to help with Cora, I was like, I'm going to do this. Do you mind if I just keep going? But then I was, I was quite nervous about it cause it was the first time I've actually written an album with other people in mind. And so. I sort of got into, I get in this crazy frenzy of, like, making sure the space in which I'm recording is, like, absolutely, totally perfect, mm. and, um, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna arrange this all for Trio, so I, like, need, I moved, basically rearranged my entire workroom with, like, the desk right next to um, my, uh, I have, like, an organ that I record on and, like, my Casio keyboard, like, and so everything was sort of in this little corner, and then basically, once I got everything in place, it just all came together really quickly. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think it took me as long maybe to rearrange the room so it was in the, in the perfect order as to maybe record the album. That's great. Not exactly, but I mean, it, it sort of
0: is that way. I've heard you mention as well that you could only hear this music with Yoni and Otto in mind. Um, and as you've said, you work worked with them both individually previously. What is it about these two players that made them right for Ray?
1: You know, it's a a funny thing playing music with other people. I think the most important thing that I find I need is trust when playing with other people because like all of my music is so incredibly close to me. Mm. And being able to feel comfortable to make the music with the people that I'm making it with is really important. and I both love playing music with Otto and Yoni, but also really love them both personally. Mm. And I think that those two things were really important. Also just I think I mean, Yoni is just brilliant because he is up for absolutely anything. like <laughs> he played in my last trio. And I was like, t- and with that, I was like, so Yoni, do you think you could like play bass clarinet and piano at the same time? And he was like, <laughs> oh yeah, sure, whatever, <laughs> you know. And um, it's kind of the same now. Like we've just started preparing for a show that may or may not happen on the 3rd of December at Cafe Auto, uh-huh. depending on, you know, where the country stands. But mm. um, it, we've started rehearsing for it. And Yoni's like totally pulled out some, Uh, Roland Kirk style double horn moves (laughs) to like fill out you know like because we did overdubs on the album obviously and I just I think you know the fact that he has all those skills and is like totally open to doing really weird doublings in the band and also that he's he can read music but also like it's a great improviser and uh, his background is you know is equally diverse probably as my own and and I really appreciate that. And Otto, you know, a lot of the same things. I, I don't know Otto quite as well as I know Yoni, but um, he can play and is versed in like a really wide background of music and he's happy to play a simple song or happy to, you know, like really shred like an improvisation or he'll, he'll he's happy to do the most minimal thing. And I think he's very sensitive to following the music
0: and the vibe and um yeah i really like that <laughs> awesome um i mean it sounds like such a lively record I mean, i read quite early on that it had been recorded during lockdown so i must have had this intellectual understanding that it wasn't recorded all in the same space and you make reference to overdubs as well but it's such a wonderfully lively sound and like a, such a rich dialogue going on that it's very easy to to defy that understanding and to imagine you all sharing a space. I mean, I understand that you utilize some interesting methods to kind of convey what you were after from both of them. So, how did the collaboration actually play out?
1: Uh, like, how did we record? How did we record it?
0: Yeah, or like, how did you convey what you were what you were looking for from the musicians as well?
1: Uh, it sort of really varied from track to track, and also from part like line to line on each track. I think with Yoni. I often, like, I would send an actual written-out part, so there were notated lines, but then usually I would say, so here's this line, can you record this? But also, you know, I hear in this section some improvising, or maybe do you want to try and make these kinds of sounds here? So a lot of verbal cues. Mm. And he, you know, honestly, he just, everything he sent back was (laughs) so so spot on. (laughs) that it was amazing. And sometimes even, like, with... Uni, I was sending him tracks that were literally just like a bass part and not telling him what I had already recorded, oh, like not wow. sending him what I would re- had recorded. And it, it was such an incredible, it was so funny when I would piece things back together, how in tune the things he and I had recorded without doing it together were, I think it just was, yeah, like some kind of cosmic brainwaves happening between. us, <laughs> <those. laughs> And um, it was a little different with Otto. So Otto actually, uh, I asked Otto to send me some bass, like ostinatos, just like um, if he would record a few bits. And so, like the sort of repeating bass part on Little Butterfly and maybe on Cross the Ocean, I think maybe he had just sent me those on his own, like had recorded them solo, and then I built the pieces. Around those bass parts that he had sent on other ones, I would send him either notated parts or parts, sort of like I would play the organ, and what I imagined the bass um, parts to kind of be, and he would make them his own, sort mm-hmm. of from these sketches of ideas that I had, um, and also then simultaneously I would ask him maybe to, you know, add harmonics in certain parts or to improvise in certain parts of songs and also i don't think Otto almost ever heard yoni's parts added in because those came a little bit later so also it's just funny how natural sort of everything fell together i mean there was some editing but considering how much information they both sent in there was there wasn't that much need to do that much fiddling around which was really brilliant
0: you mentioned Little Butterfly there, which I think is the song at, in my current acquaintance with this record, which is really protruding as something which conveys, I mean, I, I you know, I'll tell you how I'm receiving it. It may be totally wider than Mark, but yeah. about pleading this butterfly to stay, knowing that over lockdown, you know, gardening, and uh, I know if you've mentioned gardening playing a prominent role, but so mm-hmm. much emotional investment, uh, has gone into the garden as a space which you can kind of carve out as your own and even the fucking butterfly won't stick around after all of that <laughs> that you put in there's a lot being put on the butterfly you know um, yeah. it just felt like such a lovely encapsulation of how misplaced the frustration is in terms of you know how we've been riding out this situation and w- which means that it's quite easy to just land it on a butterfly <laughs> if you're gonna yeah. land it anywhere you know
1: <laughs> yeah it was I mean I really did I think the majority of the summer was spent in our very small catford garden and I mean it it, I mean, it was very much like I had had an experience with a butterfly <laughs> and came into the house and wrote that song so <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, one more question that I wanted to ask uh, before we go into your important records is that I understand that Lost in Shadows pulled on the early stages of motherhood. Um, Mm -hmm. To what extent does Ray pull on motherhood as well? And and how has the presence of motherhood in your music changed, if this is possible to articulate?
1: I think this sort of actually leads into my important albums for this time. But um, since becoming a mother, the music that we have on In the House has changed <laughs> a little bit, you yeah. know, so, you know, I, we tend not to be a family that will play a lot of nursery rhymes or things in the house. So we still try to play music that my partner and I want to listen to, but we also obviously want Cora, our daughter, to want to listen to it. And so I think there's been, you know, more sort of fun, quote unquote fun or uplifting music in the house, particularly, during lockdown, I think, because, Mm. you know, sort of, there was a real need to sort of wipe away all the grimness that was sort of outside of our door and try and create some form of happiness inside. And that led to a lot of dance parties in our house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, Ray is a reflection of a need for some of that playfulness, uh, or maybe a reflection of, I, I feel like it's probably, mm, it's hard to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, uh, there's definitely a playfulness in it that I think has come as a result of the time during lockdown in which I was you know, being in in the garden with my daughter, having dance parties or, you know, the fact that like, she wasn't in nursery. And so we were just, I was playing all the time, you know, like, mm-hmm. in, it, trying to be in that childlike thing. Also, a few of the songs are sort of melodies that um, I would sing to my daughter as lullabies. So actually uh. that I ended up arranging for this album including the first track, which is one that I've sung for my daughter since she was born. And it sort of lingered around, and I always kind of imagined doing something with it. And one morning, it was actually it was the last song we recorded for the album, the first track, um, Star Over Sand. And I, I woke up one morning and just completely... Saw how it was going to go, and I went downstairs and recorded it, and I sent it to Yoni and Otto, and they recorded, luckily, recorded their parts really quickly because I was like, <laughs> just needed to hear it all yeah. together, and um, so it sort of has become an anthem <laughs> in our family. <laughs> Yeah, I've sort of roundabout maybe or maybe not answered that question.
0: Beautiful. (laughs) That's a fabulous answer. I'm so glad you brought that track as well. I've been singing that all around the house. My wife has been joining in. She's not even heard the track, but purely on my humming. So it is a strong, it's a strong melody. It's fabulous. Um, Thank
1: you.
0: So let's talk about your important records. As you say, that's a really nice way to lead into talking about them. I mean, I'll let you pick... Whichever one you want to talk about first, if you give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important as well, why it has been important. Um,
1: maybe we should talk about I, Jonathan, by sure. Jonathan Richman first.
0: Yeah, let's go for it.
1: Cool. Uh, I think uh, back to sort of the dance party aspect, all of these albums were albums that sort of um, fulfilled a need during the lockdown. So they were important in in different ways than maybe, you know, like being really fundamental in my evolution as a musician or human being, but they've been really sort of nonstop presence Mm. over the last nine months. And this one in particular, Jonathan Richmond was actually um, not on this album, but the, his song, Little Dinosaur was one of my daughter's favorite songs when she was about Oh, I don't know. Just between a year and two years. And it used to be on constant repeat in our house. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't actually know Jonathan Richmond until she was about that age, so about three years ago, maybe three and a half. And I think I was definitely at Cafe Auto and it was, I was trying to think of who was playing. It was either Fielding Hope or Will from Ya yeah, You. One of them mm. was DJing and Jonathan Richmond kept coming on. And every time he came on, I was like, who is this? This is so great. <laughs> and, you know, that was sort of my introduction. But also simultaneously, my par- partner had sort of started playing Little Dinosaur. And it was a weird kind of thing that he had just kind of appeared in my life. And I had just fallen in love with him. And a lot of these songs sort of have been favorites of my daughter also that we end up dancing to, like... Um, Well, I was dancing in in the lesbian bar, that one. (laughs) 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 And that summer feeling, obviously, and parties in the USA. I really love just sort of the simplicity and the joy. And I I guess like the emotional, I don't know. I was trying to think of what it is about Jonathan Richman and how to put into words sort of... uh, It's a similar, I find with him, like, a similar kind of joy that I find in listening to, like, Mar Shalal Hashbaz, where it's, I don't know, you know, not to, I don't want to, by saying, like, simplistic, I don't want to take away from the music or something, you know, or, like, naive isn't even the right word, but there's something in it that just feels so honest, I guess, and Mm. they're not trying to sort of be, um, I don't know, it's not too serious and it's and i've just i just have fallen in love with it but um it's something that i sort of there's sort of an honesty in it that i strive for in my own music and with him you know i really admire that and i i also really admire just that he's able to sort of bring joy into the music and mm. yeah
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i it's really interesting i watched an interview with him just yeah. before we recorded where I think the interviewer as well was trying to find the right terminology to use that didn't sound derogatory to describe what it is that he's bringing into the music, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Because you use the terms like simplistic, which feels kind of spot on. Did it not have connotations of sort of downgrading the music?
1: Exactly. But it's not
0: that you can't get the right term, which means that it's inherently kind of complicated in that sense as well.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: I've, I've, see, I'd never heard of Jonathan Richmond. Another thing I found really interesting is the fact that it's kind of like um, that summer feeling track is kind of dark as well. Um, I know, yeah. <laughs> but he's sort of reflecting on almost like his own compulsion. I, this is what it felt like again on first glance, but reflecting on his own compulsion towards the sounds of like I don't know the '60s or felt like a lot of Beach Boys in there. Obviously, a lot of yeah. Underground, right?
1: Yeah. Definitely, definitely Velvet Underground, but um, yeah, I'm not very, I'm like the worst person to ask about any kind of musical references of other people because <laughs> I don't, my brain does not categorize music or like connect to music in those ways
2: Oh ah, interesting. <laughs> at all.
1: like not at all, like, I, yeah, it's really weird, but anyway, so reference points, you know, I can, I know that they, it sounds and exists as something that I have heard, but it's a weird sort of block in my brain that doesn't allow connections
0: yeah, <laughs> I mean it probably as well allows for like um something to just be a kind of appreciated in its own right
1: i I like that yes <laughs> I appreciate it in its own right exactly
0: <laughs> uh, and has this led you um into hearing more of Jonathan's music this record? yeah,
1: I mean, we listen to a lot of him around the house and. Not always necessarily albums, but a lot of songs of his have become sort of anthems around our house, including, yeah, Little Dinosaur and um, Ice Cream Van. And I, I mean, there is like a real, he does do some children's songs. So there's like something, it strikes a good balance in my family as being music that we, the whole family can love, which is a nice balance to have.
0: (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely um and do you have a favorite track of your own as well
1: um on this album yeah yeah i it probably would be that summer feeling i think although we do listen to uh i was dancing in the lesbian bar a lot (laughs) so that one's often in my head because it's quite catchy but um i think this that summer feeling might be my favorite yeah
0: yeah it's gorgeous um, and has your daughter accrued Any other favourites as well?
1: She really likes I Was Dancing in a Lesbian Bar And sings that one a lot um, <laughs> Which is pretty cool yeah. Maybe um, Velvet Underground Is good too and Parties in the USA Those tend to be You know the highlights I would say
2: I was dancing in the lesbian bar ooh, ooh, ooh. In the first bar
0: Let's talk about your second important record. Now, Ashley, uh, again, if you give me the name of it and a bit about why it's important too. The
1: next one I thought to include was Duke Ellington's The Nutcracker Suite. I mean, Duke Ellington has sort of been a big part of my life for a number of years. Uh, I grew up playing in big bands, so I sort of grew up playing his music, but it wasn't really until I was in my 20s, when I was studying with Anthony Coleman, that I sort of developed sort of more of an adult appreciation for him and really started digging back into his music. and. Johnny Hodges became like a really, really big influence in my saxophone playing around that time. You know, I absolutely love him. And I and I was, I have to say, debating between this and Afro which is also probably, I mean, Afro is probably my favorite Duke Ellington album, but this was recorded around the same time. And this, um, since I was going th- for like the lockdown theme, this one actually <laughs> has probably been playing a lot more, mainly because um, my daughter's, really into ballet. I started playing her the Nutcracker Suite, like the Tchaikovsky Nutcracker Suite a while. And actually I was searching on Spotify uh, or something. I say grimacing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, this popped up. And I think, and I, maybe it was about a year ago that this, and I didn't even know that this existed. Mm. And I put it on and I just sort of, we all fell in, you know, I fell in love with it. And, um, I think it ticks a lot of things that sort of have been really important to me in my own music. Like, uh, uh, I did my master's degree in, uh, contemporary improvisation, but the department where I went, uh, was founded by Rand Blake, who is the pianist. And he had called the department third stream originally, which w- is what the department was known as for many, many years, but, um. Gunther Schuller had actually coined that term to mean, like, if you combine two genres of music, so originally it was jazz and classical music, you get a third stream of music. Right. And that sort of idea of crossing boundaries of, you know, what's classical, what's jazz, what's popular, you know, and, and noise even in different sound aspects of music, those, all the idea of sort of meshing these Mm. in my own music has been really important. And I, you know, this is such an early example of it. And I, I just don't know how you couldn't hear this and not fall in love with it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's just brings me joy to listen to this album. I think the arrangements are just, there's so much sort of like play in, in the actual arrangements, which were actually done by Ellington and Strayhorn Mm. together. Um, But again, this was a big part of our our dance parties in our house. So um, (laughs) yeah,
0: (laughs) tell me about these dance parties. Are we literally just right? Let's crank the music up. Let's all dance.
1: Yeah, pretty much. It it tends to be a post dinner activity. Because there's usually like music on during during dinner, and then maybe like a favorite would come on. And then it's sort of like, all right, let's get going. And also, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but they did. I mean, we had. I mean, it's not always an evening thing. They do have a lot of afternoon dance. And also, I have to say, you know, like during lockdown, especially like you know the the three PM glass of wine or whatever it was (laughs) the very very the drinking started happening earlier and earlier which meant usually the dance parties started happening (laughs) earlier and earlier (laughs) Uh,
0: that's great
1: but
0: yeah yeah I mean this is I can totally see boogie into this hard like I had it on while I was working I swear I was typing a bit more jovially just having it on Um, because you you mentioned about this third stream it feels Mm -hmm. like something maybe quite precarious with a record like this where it could sound so gimmicky and forced if it kind of takes the wrong turn I don't know Um,
1: absolutely I think it's a it's treading on a really thin line but it's definitely like so good like ended up on the so good spectrum of that (laughs)
0: <laughs> but yeah I, and I don't know what the you know how it ends up in one camp and not the other but it felt to me it feels to me like it's like that this potential arrangement was kind of sat dormant within the original and it mm-hmm. just needed coaxing out rather than being like you know let's let's swing this up a bit it's just such yeah. just so good I, I don't know whether that's because like the original is so staccato and precise and like rigidly rhythmic you know, as a ballet. And all it needed was to have its limbs loosened and this would come out. It's really cool.
1: It is really cool. It definitely feels as though the first limbs were loosened.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you mentioned that Duke Ellington was something that you came into through playing in big band. Did you enjoy the music when you were playing in big band? Because I know that personally when I've had music that I've encountered through playing, you know, in Uh, in bands and it's something that's put in front of you to play it's not necessarily something that you can you then go on to like enjoy because I I guess it could feel like something you're sort of being asked to do rather than being able to do voluntarily but I mean is Duke Duke Ellington always been enjoyable to you
1: he's always been enjoyable I think I really loved playing in big bands like Hmm. I was totally a a lead alto big band geek when I was in high school (laughs) And I absolutely loved it. But I think there there is an aspect of it where, you know, sometimes you need to come to things on your own terms or in your own way mm-hmm. when you're ready to find them. And I always really liked his music and respected him. But I don't think there wasn't sort of that, like, personal joy from it. Like, uh-huh. um, at the time that I was playing in big bands, which was very un-big band-like, I was, like, obsessed with Paul Desmond. So Paul Desmond was, like what I wanted out of music whilst at the same time, like, you know, refining my lead alto tone and things like that. So they kind of conflicted with one another and there was things I learned from playing Duke Ellington, like how to actually swing, mm. you know, and, um, and I really enjoyed like on that music that it gave the chance for the band to actually like, because a lot of the music is so simple, at least that we were playing, like, to just like really focus on the vibe and the swing and like getting the feeling right mm-hmm. um but i think like as far as like digging into his music on his on my own you know it wasn't like i was really playing ellington records at home i was playing paul desmond records at home yeah and and that didn't start really i mean it sort of two things had happened you know like when i was in my 20s doing my master's degree it was i sort of was getting into Johnny Hodges on my own because I, I really was copying what he was doing as far as like the vibrato and like the bending into notes. And like, I just was transcribing a lot of Johnny Hodges at the time to sort of learn how to bend pitches in the way that he does. And um, sort of simultaneously like studying with Anthony Coleman and his love of Duke Ellington was, was really infectious and uh, developed a love for him sort of through these those two avenues.
0: It feels like a nice chance to also ask about your relationship with the Alto. I mean, it sounds like you've been playing that for many, many years. Are you still feeling your relationship with the Alto saxophone changing, developing?
1: Yeah, I mean it's funny this album in particular well I think about Yes. To answer that question, yes. It's a very (laughs) long-winded answer, but I I sort of have had, I don't know, like a struggle with the alto saxophone since since I first went to conservatory when I was 18. And I sort of went in with an idea that I was going to be like the next great jazz saxophonist. (laughs) And about two years into my degree was like, fuck jazz, it's like a dead music and it's not going anywhere. <laughs> and what am I doing with my life? And I sort of became really disillusioned with all of sort of what jazz stood for. Mm. Nearly gave up the sax. I mean, I finished my degree, but then graduated and packed my saxophone away and didn't touch it for a year and was doing a lot of visual art. Then I moved to New York and I was really poor. And so I s- actually... Um, Roberts and I went to school together and she was like, oh, I've been busking in the subways. Like, why don't you do that? And I was like, all right, I'll give it a try. And so I started busking in the subways in New York. And basically that's sort of how I came back to the saxophone. And so I was doing that for about a year, like five or six hours a day and paying my rent in coins. And then I decided to go back to New England Conservatory to get my master's degree and like really, really fell in love with the saxophone again and like really fell in love with music and was starting to sort of develop the beginnings of sort of what my music is now. But then again, like I sort of went off of it for a while when I first started recording and I think I was sort of very interested in sound. I'd been studying Cage and Feldman and like space and sound became really more important maybe And then slowly over the years, it's sort of been coming back. But this album in particular, and I've been feeling, I think because my live sets have become increasingly more saxophone centered and, Mm. and really like doing a lot more improvisatory uh, like sections and parts of my solo sets live. And then I really wanted I just really wanted this to be like a saxophone forward album. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, I don't know how like it's being interpreted because I think that my idea of like what these al- all of my albums sound like, I don't know, you know, I'm too close to it <laughs> to maybe yeah. be able to see it, but like, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that the saxophone feels like it's much more a part of this album and like much more at the forefront, both melodically and, you know, the improvisation and, um, and I think in a way this band has kind of made a full circle to some of the music that I was writing when I was doing my master's degree and I had a quartet at the time. But it's sort of like this I don't, I don't even, you know, mix of popular song and maybe jazz elements and, you know, everything, mm. whatever else. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, you talked about this idea of you know the third stream being important in your music or featuring you know heavily in your in your thoughts do you have yeah any thoughts on why that's particularly compelling to you
1: um because i've never i mean when i was young it was definitely jazz that i loved but i think it also maybe ties into the fact that i can't like categorize music by genres in my head i've always <laughs> like i've never defined boundaries in like the kinds of music that I liked. So it's, I think always been really varied. And it, I think because those boundaries aren't there so much in the way I think of it, like it doesn't make sense in my own music to create those sorts of boundaries. And it wasn't so much like a, I I don't think it's so much consciously that I was combining these elements it's just like all those elements are actually a part of me and that's what I hear and that's how music to me sounds mm. I guess and you know I think when I went to NEC and like the idea of Third Stream was presented to me you know I that really resonated a lot but also at the same time I was sort of like I think it resonated because it was already kind of internalized in a way maybe.
0: I want to pick up on something as well that you, you mentioned when you initially went to study with the sax and you had that moment of being like, fuck jazz. It felt like (laughs) something where, you know, I dabbled last year, year before in learning the soprano, having not Mm -hmm. had any woodwind experience, but got really into jazz prior to that point as well in the kind of two years running up to it. And I Mm -hmm. felt this is obviously very different. Someone like me who's having a little dabble and you who spent, you know, a lot of time studying with it. But I felt like that the stories and mythos around jazz, there are people who, you know, who, who write the pinnacle of jazz, you know, your Coltrane's and people who clearly practiced yeah. all the time were relentless about what they do. And I almost felt as I was just starting to squawk out the Pink Panther and stuff, I was like, if I can't get to that point, is there a, it's quite, almost quite disheartening. <laughs> like, is there, a, is there a place in the midground? And it kind of felt quite disheartening to to think about that where did the kind of like oh screw this it's a dead music come from was it kind of that kind of place or, or, or what was playing into you know one to push back originally
1: yeah I think that's a, it's tricky I think there there's might be an element of that because I think what I wanted out of the saxophone was never to be that really virtuosic saxophonist and I I think I didn't you know technically I guess I'm Fairly good at the saxophone. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, like where I went to school, there were there were saxophonists that, you know, they spent all their time practicing licks in the practice room.
2: Hmm.
1: And I just, that, that wasn't something that, and I did do that for a long time. But then it, I just sort of got to a point where I was like, you know, what I really like is to play melodies. Uh-huh. I really like s- making sounds. I'm really interested in like, you know, harmonic possibilities of the saxophone. And I just, I was confused. I mean, I think also there's, you know, in addition to sort of that aspect of it, there there are parts of being a female jazz musician that were not comfortable for me. Mm. And, the, you know, I think NEC was really good for it for the most part, but I don't, and I didn't do very well with sort of that, like, um, very macho kind of like cutting sessions that you know like i don't know if you know what i mean but uh yeah. like you know those types of things and i did experience some problems with sexual discrimination mm. and i think you know all of those things combined together to sort of paint a picture of a a sort of scene that i i didn't really want to be a part of anymore
0: yeah, fair. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember watching Whiplash just recently and that paints, you know, I don't have any experience in jazz academia, but paints a picture of like an incredibly machismo-driven environment in which people are learning jazz.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen that. But it, I mean, it's, um, it, it is present, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or it was present. I mean, at the time I did my undergraduate degree, I was the only female instrumentalist in the undergraduate department, and Martineau was the only gradu- you know like a master's instrument female instrumentalist I think so it you know in a department of however many people that was it it was not always there were there were vocalists but not other instrumentalists, so it was intense <laughs> yeah
0: yeah but, um, so if we were to play a clip of this record the nutcracker suite here is there a particular part of this suite that appeals to you most
1: i i would say either track two toot toot tooty toot or number seven <laughs> the chinese dance the chine soiree i don't know how to pronounce that chinese dance
0: well actually let's go to your third important record now if you could give me the name of it and then a bit about why it's important to you as well
1: uh the last one is joshua abrams and the natural information society and the album is mandatory reality um this one sort of was important in the lockdown for really opposite reasons from the others i didn't know about this one at all until the lockdown but a friend of mine had made me like a 12 hour lockdown mixtape and wow. the track finite from this album was included on that and you know when i first listened to the 12 hour mixtape it was sort of on in the background and we were just kind of listening to it but then i sort of i dumped the whole thing into my itunes and one day i sort of was just clicking through things that i didn't recognize and i i turned this on and i was making sort of, I've been doing a lot of drawing lately, Mm -hmm. and I was making sort of a playlist in which to draw to, and like, put this into the playlist, and it came on, and it sort of, it came on while I wasn't really paying attention, you know, sort of was like doing, drawing, sitting and drawing and trying to get into the moment doing that, and this track, Finite, came on, and I sort of just like stopped in my tracks, and I just sort of was like, you know, I've sort of felt like instantly that this was my favorite thing I'd heard in <laughs> a really long time. Mm. And it it has sort of been on in our house almost every day since that, which was like a couple months ago. And I think opposite reasons of maybe I, Jonathan and the Nutcracker Suite, which kind of brought me joy and made me kind of picked me up when I maybe was feeling a little bit down. Mm. Um, This one sort of gave me space and allowed me to actually to sort of take a breath, which I don't know about you, but I think just sort of finding space to breathe right now has seemed really challenging. Like, it's it's just like everything. is feels so incredibly overwhelming to me Mm -hmm. with like the state of the world, not only because of the pandemic, be- but because of um, you know the the amount of political shit that's going on, and yeah. you know, the, and missing my family and and other uh, other things. So I think this sort of has brought me a great amount of calm, and I just I mean I think the musicianship and is just lovely on it. But I I've, uh, yeah, I yeah the space that this album has given me has been a real gift.
0: And of the other tracks, spoken to you as intensely as well as as finite.
1: Well, to be perfectly honest, the one that doesn't resonate in the same way is Shadow Conductor, and the other three tracks I really, I really like feel connected to. I think maybe because it's uh, has a different kind of like a pulsing dissonance. That, the tension in that one is maybe too close to like my internal tension at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh but i really like agree a lot and actually you know in memories prison the first second and final track i i really love yeah. yeah
0: i only was able to hear the i heard a bit of finite that i could find but also the first track as well which is mm-hmm. so stunning like the way the chords over the top kind of come in and feel
1: right so oh. it's so beautiful. i know I, I sort of i listened to it a long time without sort of really consciously listening and then I've sort of more recently been paying more attention to them. maybe how they're trying to think about sort of how they're constructing the pieces. And yeah, it's the ensemble itself, just like the comfort, you know, there's sort of the mm. way they sort of each pick out a note from the line and play it and like are creating the line between themselves and yeah, surely improvise, you know, sort of like improvising within like a, on those set pitches, um, but it's just, it's really one of my favourite things that I've heard in a, in a long time, and particularly something that's, in like, brand new. Mm. You know, and, I mean, I think it came out a couple of years ago, but, um, you know, n- new. Yeah, newer
0: than <laughs> Duke Ellington. I tend to listen to a,
1: a lot of um, older music, so, uh, yeah.
0: And obviously we talked about the fact that, you know, Duke Ellington and Jonathan Richmond, it's dance party music. What mm-hmm. kind of scenario is this album being played in?
1: Um, Well, it has been played a lot. Like I've been doing a lot of visual art. So that was sort of where it first came in, but it's sort of become it's so it, it would be like in my work room where I'd be sitting and drawing or maybe just crocheting or something and sort of, you know, taking some personal time. Mm. Um, But it, it has actually come out of the studio now and, will be on maybe while I'm cooking dinner and my daughter is, is playing dolls at my feet or, you know, I think it's sort of become a family favorite as well, as far as, you know, it it sets a really nice mood for just uh, a a calmer life. (laughs) 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 But it's, it's not like necessarily calm in like a boring way. I don't, you know, I think just the fact that it's like such beautiful, repetitive, nothing feels forced in it and i think it, it sort of allow it creates a space in which to be which i i think for, i i tend to be quite um i have a lot of anxious energy and i i tend to sort of i don't i don't know what the right word is but i you know i tend to overplan and overthink and mm. think this kind of it allows a space to kind of be in where you can maybe just take a moment and me not be my normal crazy self <laughs>
0: I'm intrigued by this twelve hour lockdown mix. I mean that's a lovely gesture from a friend. yeah, what else did you have on that mix?
1: i you know to be honest, I don't even remember because it was sort of like <laughs> I put it on, and things have come up since then where I was like, actually, I couldn't figure out what what a bunch of stuff was was in my iTunes, and I was like, How did that get there and then <laughs> I was like, oh wait, actually, that's totally from this right. um but I couldn't tell you specific tracks. Fair enough. <laughs> Unfortunately, sorry if you're listening. <laughs> um,
0: and Joshua Abrams, I mean, is, was this someone that you'd known prior to this piece? Or was this the, your first exposure no. to him? Huh.
1: I didn't know anything about him. And I still really, I mean, I know very little about him except for that he's, you know, like a bass player from Chicago. And that's kind of the extent of what I know
0: yeah i mean i'll edit this out if it's wrong but um just frantically looking it up as well but i think he played with martineau at a certain point as well
1: oh that would make sense because she's from chicago so yeah uh that would totally make sense yeah
0: sounds like from from this list of records am i right in thinking then that really all three records have have come into uh your life in at least in a big way throughout this lockdown period and and didn't maybe have prominence prior to that point is that correct
1: the kind of prominence they do have didn't exist i think the ellington it was probably about a year ago at most a year and a half ago that i first heard it Mm. but then you know once lockdown started it became something that we listened to you know multiple times a week same with jonathan richmond i would sort of listen to you know tracks of his that were quite popular in our house but you know sort of this album in itself became i mean in some ways sort of like yeah the the theme music to (laughs) the last nine months and, and the final one, it was only really a couple months ago, but I actually think it has really helped me. Uh, I practice yoga and there's a certain kind of thinking, like a space I get into in yoga, which is good for me as far as like calling my head. And I've, I've found that this album sort of, especially with making art, which I've started doing visual art quite a bit more recently has really helped Yeah, me sort of get into that, mindset so yeah they all are very recent recent obsessions more I guess
0: (laughs) (laughs) and so did your say you're like the listening around the house like prior to lockdown the kind of things that you would go to as a a reflex which is what sounds like these records have have kind of become was that a different set of music
1: maybe yeah I mean there's there was always like a lot of Captain Beefheart in our house There was always a lot of Ellington in our house. There's usually a lot of Borton Feldman in our house. My partner has different tastes in music than I do. So he puts a lot of things on that I wouldn't necessarily listen to. But um, I would maybe have listened to more like Bach or Feldman Mm -hmm. around the house and sort of like quieter music a lot of times, other than like the occasional dance party that we would have to like. your eyes are a blue million miles or something. <laughs> but um, the, I think the sort of there was a definite shift, personally, in the need for music that sort of brought me up during lockdown. And I just I think there was so much outside that was so grating and so hard to fathom, mm. that I needed music that simply like in a really simple terms, brought me joy. And that there was no sort of pretext with them, or even like um even Beefheart kind of became like a little bit, wh- whom I totally love, but even that I think sort of became grating in a way because I just was so sensitive to, I just was became so sensitive to music and sound and like
0: hmm. um yeah <laughs> yeah Beefheart's quite a jagged character, I guess to bring into it. <laughs> eh? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I remember um, trading emails with you actually on the back of the interview that you did for attention. I think it's like five years back now. But um, yeah. you mentioned, I think, Tropical Hot Dog being one of your favorite people's oh, yeah.
1: songs. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah.
0: That's a good one. It's, it's a crazy song.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good song. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: and mean, the lyrics. I are, might actually, oh my God. I
1: haven't listened to it in a couple of months. I might actually ha- hang up and uh, put pump that up in the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it that's
0: a good dance party one um totally <laughs> if, so if you really want to listen to a, a, a record actually i mean it sounds like these have their context and their purposes um mm-hmm. is there an environment or a setup that you have when you just want to listen to something with you know as, as dedicated as you can where do you go to do that
1: well actually what i've started doing is taking walks and listening to music mm. and i i uh, maybe it's a result of screens and things like my attention isn't, isn't what it used to be, but I've found it, it lately putting my headphones on and going for a walk for an hour and listening to albums. I, I think that's right now is my go to I like really like wearing headphones and listening to music. Like I think mm-hmm. maybe just cause the sound goes like straight in, um, and there's no outside distractions. Um, or and maybe just like moving and listening at the same time sort of helps mm. me to focus and that i i do love a walk and i do love a walk with music
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a great answer <laughs> well ashley thank you so much for um, speaking to me about your music these important records and much else besides as well this has been great
1: oh good thanks thank you Jeff. it's been really fun
0: and uh, people want to check out your music and I'd implore people to check out Ray as well. Where's the best place for them to do that online?
1: Well, Ray is on Bandcamp. So probably Bandcamp, I would say it's a good place. Although um, there was just a preview of Ray up on The Wire, which is also has about like four tracks you can listen to now. So four or five tracks, yeah.
0: Nice one, I'll include links in the show notes. Um, Well, thank you once again to everyone listening. I'll See you next time, goodbye.